Welcome back to the FNF Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. We continue to produce daily content on FNFcoaches.com. Visit the website to check out stories about how the pandemic is impacting football across the country. Also, subscribe to the FNF Coaches Podcast on your preferred platform. We're on Spotify, iTunes, and most of the popular outlets. Today's guest is Trent Lohman, who was hired at East Surrey High School in North Carolina in 2018, taking over for a local legend in coach David Diamond. It was actually the second time he'd taken over for a legend as his first job at Bandy's came on the heels of his father's prolific tenure as head coach of that team. Lohman's short stint at East Surrey has been a huge success. He led the school to its first state championship last year with an undefeated 15-0 season. Coach Lohman, thanks for joining the podcast. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. So where, how, how are things standing in North Carolina? You guys are waiting until the spring to play football, aren't you? Or yeah, We are. Uh, it has, our season has been set. Uh, the first game will be February 26th, and, and our first practice will be February 8th. Oh, man. How, so how has that changed things? You got, do you have guys playing other sports in the fall, or are you train, doing a lot of strength training in the fall, or how are things different this year? Well, we're we're a little behind, I guess, if you look across the nation. We can't use any weight rooms yet. Um, our our state athletic association just now allowed us to increase our numbers to having 25 athletes together inside or, or 50 outside, but then it's still up to local LEAs uh, and school systems to what they allow. So everyone is – there's several systems that still can't even use a football right now. Um uh, November 4th is the first practice for any sports whatsoever. And we're starting with basketball uh, and cross country and a few others here. So we're, we're still handcuffed uh, in what we're doing. Yeah, that makes it tough, especially, um, you know, when you see, I think it's difficult for coaches who have been postponed until the spring where at least their state has been postponed for until the spring, when you see all these highlights and some of these States are right on the border, you know, like I was talking to a coach last week who is from Illinois and they they're playing in the spring, but Indiana is playing now. And it's just, you know, frustrating because some of these rules seem to be kind of arbitrary where just a geographical line, you know, it doesn't really change that much of how the virus is impacting the community, but it's, it's so state by state. And, uh, were you, were, were you pretty disappointed by the fact that they postponed to, until the spring or were, was it what you were expecting or how, what was your reaction to that? You know, just with the way everything's been going, I expected it to happen, but I was definitely disappointed. Um, I was really disappointed, uh, for two reasons. One in particular is, is we have a young man that's graduating in December and going on to University of Tennessee in January. So he'll miss his senior season now. And, uh, you know, he was going to be a big part of our our program on both sides of the football. So that hurts us as a team. But, you know, individually for him, it put him in a position, do I decide to stick with my plans about my future or do I decide to put that on hold for a semester so I can spend one last year with my high school teammates and friends. Um, So those decisions are tough on people. We have another handful of of 2021 grads that are in that evaluation bubble where where some small division one schools and division two schools are wanting to evaluate them 
in the spring and then that got pushed to the summer and then it got pushed to the fall and and now we won't play a game until after the signing date so they're losing they're losing that evaluation time and, and could hurt them in the recruiting process so you know in terms of our individual guys future it, it was really disappointing in terms of a program like i said we're going to lose one um power five defensive lineman that was also going to play a tight end and and we were looking at we're looking at several young guys stepping in on offense in particular that the momentum of winning the championship in December and, and coming right back in the fall, the momentum would have helped us uh, to where now some of that momentum will be gone. And, uh, you know, everyone's starting with an even plate, so to speak. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. I mean, we do think the, you know, the recruiting is obviously a huge thing where if you, uh, you know, now you're going on last year's tape and, you know, if you're not, able to even start practicing until November and uh you know it's it's looking like it's going to be difficult for these guys to get any better looks than what they've already got on tape are there any combines or you know opportunities for these guys to go maybe even travel to another state and get something on film or is it pretty limited well it's it's very limited um they can go to some some camps but the problem is the college coaches aren't allowed to be there right now either so the evaluation of that is, is difficult. We do have a local seven-on-seven uh, seven that's being ran by an outside organization, and they'll do a lineman challenge a couple times and, and trying to get as much of that on film as possible. But it's still, you know, at the end of the day, if, if a college has an opportunity to evaluate someone playing real-life full-contact football versus someone in, in shorts and a compression shirt running routes, they're going to they're gonna take the guy they saw play for real. So – we're doing everything we can as, as high school coaches to help our kids, but the reality is they're at a disadvantage. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I live in new England and um, I, I said, I noted in my intro and you just noted that uh, you guys won a state championship last year and you're worried about losing some momentum that uh, you kind of accumulated there over the last year. Like I was saying, though, I'm from New England. So um, up here, you know, we follow the Patriots and Bill Belichick. And it's uh, he's kind of a guy that uh, goes by the motto, like every year is different. Like, you know, you, you, you don't carry momentum from year to year. It's a different season, different challenges, different players. Um, but it's a little bit different in high school because you, you do kind of build and establish a culture. And like you said, you're going to lose your guy going to Tennessee that's, um, you know, would have been a great defensive lineman and tight end for you. But on the other hand, it is a lot of guys back from last year. How does that um, momentum work? Like, is it just guys are so excited about what they did the year before? They saw other guys perform in big spots and they want it to be them? Or how does momentum accumulate from year to year? You know, it is uh, what you mentioned, the excitement amongst our guys, but also it's, you know, especially in, in smaller towns and counties like this where you play against the same people your whole life. Um, if there's some momentum in winning a game against a rival maybe two years in a row or, or whatever, that's that's real. And especially early in the season um, where I got, our guys played – through December, we may be playing against a team. This last game was the first week of November, and, and we had five more weeks of, of full live practice and games and games against, you know, state champion caliber teams. That 
when you line up in August to play against a team that may have, like I said, had their last practice the first week of November, you, you do have an advantage. Um, is it significant one? No. Is it is it one that's definitely going to determine an outcome? No, it's not. But it there is an advantage there. And, you know, every year is a New Year's absolutely true. But at the same time, uh, people tend to remember things and, and don't forget so easily from one year to the next. But from one year to two years later, you know, a lot of things are often forgotten. So, I think it's it's a balance that you have to find of riding momentum, but not expecting to use that and counting on that momentum uh, if you want to remain successful. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny. We, we have a thing uh, during the football season, at least the last couple of years, one week out of the year, we'll say, hey, send your pictures of your kids with you on the, on the sideline or, you know, coming down on the field after the game or, you know, serving as a ball boy or something like that. And it's amazing how many fan, how many coaches will send, you know, and, and their kids are just so involved in the program from an early age. You know, you'll see two and three year olds standing on the sideline with their dads. And then I, I noted, I saw that uh, when I was kind of looking up your background, that your dad was a head coach. Were you around football at a pretty young age or what are your, some of your best memories of growing up around the game? Yeah, it was my whole life. My dad was a high school coach for three years before I was born, uh, and he was a head coach three years after I was born. So I'd say from the time that I was three years old, uh, I was I was around football more than anything else. And he became an athletic director by the time I was eight or nine years old. So then it was not only football, it was any and every sport he ever had to cover. Um, so I, you know, I've joked a lot of times, but I grew up in a coach's office and I grew up in locker rooms. So I feel fairly comfortable in talking with other coaches and, and usually relate to coaches that have more experience than me because I was always, you know, a young kid or a teenager or 20 years old and sitting in a coach's office uh, with my dad who was 27 years older than me and, and his friends. So. I've been around it forever and, and I, it has helped me because I've learned to listen to those who have done this longer than I have and who have come before me and, and are much wiser. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I think when you think of coaches from the outside looking in, like you, your parents sitting in the stands, you know, you you're thinking, how does this guy call a game? What are the X's and O's all about? But then, you know, maybe, maybe that's the way a fan looks at it. If you're a parent, you're like, you know, how is this, guy towards my kid is he a good leader is it what what type of coach was your dad and I'm not saying that you can only be one or the other obviously you can be great at x's and o's and you can also be a great uh personable guy who's a leader in the locker room but what, what type of coach was your dad my dad uh, I guess he was a, a both a player's coach and a, and a coach's coach my dad was all about relationships and all about loving uh, his players and his coaches and you know I can't can't even begin to count how many times he sacrificed something individually or us as a, a family to make sure that another one of his players had what they needed or or you know maybe a coach's car was broke down or whatever and, and long hours or something just as an example but football was the least priority in terms of of the football program 
And, uh, you know, that's something that, that stood out to me forever. And when it came down to winning and losing, you know, definitely winning was, was a priority and, and there was time to be no nonsense, but all of the other things were taken care of first. And once everything else was in place, then we got down to X's and O's and, and winning and losing. Yeah. And he did, he, he had a really good record too. He did a lot of winning, didn't he? He did. Uh, never, never won a state championship, but coached three teams in the finals and, and coached two more in the regional finals. Uh, he had a little run where he averaged like 13 wins a season for several years in a row. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was, he was, he was decent. <laughs> yeah. Did he get a chance to see you last year or? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, he did. Oh, that's great. What, what was that like? Uh, did you, what did you have him down on the field after the game or what was a, what was that scene like? Uh, actually we had a certain number of sideline passes that we could give to who needed them. And, and I had him and my brother, my brother's coach for 19 years now, I guess, uh, we all coached together for a long time. So they were, they were on the sideline, had to be outside of the coach's box and the player's box. So, you know, it's neat. You see pictures of them outside of the bench area, and it's as if they're in the middle of a game coaching too, bent over and crouched down and zeroed in on the play, and, you know, you can't really take a coach completely out of things. <laughs> no. I, I, you hear from parents sometimes that say that's even more nerve-wracking when they're they're coaching or they're competing because it's, uh you know, kind of out of their hands, and coaches in general seem to – like to have control of situations and don't like to kind of uh, be backseat drivers. So I could totally see how he could be, you know, really in the moment doing that. Now, it, what was, um, now, did you play under your dad or were you on his high school team or how did that go? Yeah, no, I played under him. Uh, I was a quarterback under him and my older brother was actually my senior year of high school, uh, was an assistant coach with the wide receivers. So, Oh, wow. That was, you know, that was fun. Anytime there was a bad play, uh, I was the coach's son as a quarterback, so he and I got yelled at a lot. Oh yeah, I bet. Yeah, I would. What were the? It's funny. My dad used to coach my little league team, and um, the rides home were were always interesting. You know, like if we if we played bad, and you know he's where I played bad, you know, he tried to kind of compose himself and, you know, not treat me like, you know, not take it out on me because he was a coach. Try, he tried to teach me like everyone else, but sometimes it did get the best of him. And he'd be like, man, what are you doing? You know, taking a pitch, uh, three, two count, like you got to swing if it's close. And you're like, Oh, come on. Not everybody has to go home and hear about it the whole way. But, uh, what were those rides like for you? You know, my, my dad was great. Um, when football ended, it didn't come up at home unless I brought it up or my brother brought it up. Um, and I think it's just so draining and exhausting being being in the shoes of a head coach. And I can't imagine being a head coach and coaching my son uh, out there as a quarterback. So it's definitely in the spotlight. But it, it never – we never had those conversations unless I initiated it and asked, you know, what should I have done? Or you remember on this play, blah, blah, blah. You know, what were you thinking when you caught it and what did I miss? But it was when we went home, we went home. And a lot of times we went home and didn't even talk, you know, maybe for five or six hours just because we both needed to decompress. And 
do some chores outside or, or watch a college football game on Saturday. But it was we kept that separate than than coaching player during the week. Hmm. Now, did you uh, did you play beyond high school? I went to college to play. Um, I went to Appalachian State out of high school. Mm-hmm. And ended up transferring to a, a more local Division II school, Lenora University, and uh, played there for it wasn't very long, just a few weeks. And I suffered a knee injury that I never got released from. So, oh geez, I started coaching at the age of nineteen, I guess, or twenty, um, oh. because I was injured and couldn't play. Did you always know that you were going to get into coaching and follow in your father's footsteps, or was it that injury that just said, look, I don't want to walk away from the game right now? No, I actually fully anticipated to be a collegiate strength and conditioning coach. That was my aspirations, and and I still love the weight room more than anything uh, in terms of coaching and instruction. But the way things worked out, uh, as I was looking to apply for a graduate assistant job, uh, with strength and conditioning, Lenoron had a graduate assistant opening for a position coach. So I went ahead and, and took that and started coaching wide receivers in, in the passing game uh, for Division II college and, and recruiting. And I got into the football side of it and never got out of it. Yeah. You're still a pretty young head coach, right? How old are you now? I'm 37. 37. I already have a state championship under your belt. That's pretty good. Um, now what, what went into that championship? Cause I, I want to talk to you about a, a few things that, number one, as a younger coach, you're taking over after a legend. And I would think, you know, he's probably has some established assistants on that staff who maybe even, you know, were hoping for a head coaching gig. And then the, the team has a certain way of doing it, but you do want to put your own stamp on things and have it be your team without totally, you know, unsettling the uh, apple cart, I guess they say. How do, how do you juggle that when you come in as a, a young, new head coach on a team that's already had a lot of success? You know, I, the biggest thing is, to me, is it's not on the head coach individually, but it's on that whole, that whole office of coaches. And what was so glaringly apparent here is that the other coaches in the room were uh, mature and the goal was to do what's best for the kids and to win. And the egos uh, that exist amongst coaches, you know, they're there. Uh, If you don't have an ego on us, it's hard to be driven as a coach in the first place. So the egos are there, but we all, me as the new head coach and, and, the guys here as assistants, I think everybody just, you know, checked their ego at the door and set it on the back burner. And, and we sat down and I said, you know, this is what I've done and what I see and how I've caught it in the past. What have you done? What do you think? And how have you caught it? And we basically went through every aspect of our program, um, even down to how we would we'll call a play or, or line up uh, for certain things. And we meshed with what, I liked and what I knew and what worked for them in the past and what the players already knew. And and the biggest thing that we did was try to make it simple for the players and, and as little change in routine for the players as possible and uh, put most of the work on us as coaches to learn anything that was new or different. 
And, you know, that might not be how everyone does it, but that's how we did it. And that, you know, I attribute that to, like I said, the maturity level of our assistant coaches here, and, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. What's, what scheme was in place in terms of offensive and defensive schemes when you got there, and what, what do you run? Offensively, um, Coach Diamond was an eye offense, and he ran straight eye, ran some power eye, and, and had a spread package and did it well. Um, we have been for two years very, very much spread. Uh, my first year, we were rotated two quarterbacks, and we were more uh, – if you're familiar with, with Rich Rodriguez when he was at West Virginia with Pat White, um, we were more along that style. A, a triple option zone read team from the gun mixed with some pocket passes and some screens. And this past year, the way our personnel developed over time, we, we ended up snapping almost 50% of our plays with no running back in the backfield. Um, we were five wide. We had a, a quarterback that threw for 4,700 yards and and 63 touchdowns, and he ran another. Um, he ended up totaling no, through 65 touchdowns and ran another 17. So he he can accounted for 82 touchdowns in a season. Um, so we were we were five wide, and we had an offensive line that did a great job pass protecting, and and threw a lot of screens defensively. Uh, we've been a mixed bag, and, and they had the, our athletic director is also a defensive coordinator and has been for many, many years. They've been any, anything from 4-3 to 3-4 to the 3-3 stack. And uh, it's just whatever fits our personnel. Yeah. That's uh, that's quite an offensive uh, – <laughs> That's those numbers are crazy. Um, do – now, now when you're going into this season, did you have the same quarterback or were you planning on changing anything? And how did the pandemic kind of impact that? Well, we, we graduated eight starters off of our offense. Um, we returned – no, we graduated seven. We returned three offensive linemen and one skill player. And we have we have some good guys who are planning on taking their – taking over in those positions, but they're young. They're up off JVs. Um, or they were backups on the varsity last year and – we won so many games by such a large margin, they didn't get a lot of real valuable downs. Uh, you know, they would play a decent amount in a second half of a ball game, but we were already up by 45 or 50. So it was a different caliber uh, of what they'll have to play. So there were, there were some changes or are some changes going to have to be made. And, you know, that's where the momentum I feel would have helped, uh, help the young guys grow up a little bit as, as if we could ride the momentum through a game or two in, in helping us learn and, and handle the full full speed situation. So now we'll we'll have we'll see how it rolls into the spring. Yeah, and you hear so many coaches talk about establishing or maintaining a winning culture. And, you know, obviously you've got one in place after a state championship and a program that's had a lot of success over the years. How how can you do that, you know, during a pandemic, especially when you can't be in the weight room and you can't be out on the field over the last six months? It's It's been probably a lot of Zooms and a lot of uh, phone calls or text messages. How, how do you maintain a winning culture during this time period? You know, if, if any of us figure it out, we'll let you know. <laughs> um, the biggest thing I'll say is the community here and and the coaches that coach Little League Ball and the leaders that 
for Boy Scout leaders and, and youth group leaders, the winning culture and, and stuff here was established when these boys were young and was established at the high school, you know, 20 years ago and, and what they've watched growing up. And that's one of the biggest things I've noticed in living here for two, two and a half years is the winning, the culture doesn't happen when they walk into the doors as a freshman. It's It's been groomed in them and, and they've been a part of it and their whole life. Uh, and there's an expectation when you walk in and, and you put that red jersey on that you're going to win. And because um, these kids' dads have wore that jersey or their grandfathers wore that jersey or their uncle, somebody's wore it in their life before them and done it the right way and been successful. And, and to me, that's, that part alone might be the biggest part of a winning culture. It doesn't begin in my opinion, with with a coach or, or like I said, when they walk in, it's fresh. I saw early in the pandemic, and I, and it's it's kind of been a challenge for everybody uh, since March, where you know you're home, you're you're trying to stay in somewhat of shape and keep your weight around where it's supposed to be, and st- not not get into bad habits, kind of maintain a healthy lifestyle, get good sleep, stay hydrated, you know, all the things that. Uh, you would think would be easier to do if you're at home all day because you should have more control over it. But there's the mental health side of things where you're looking and there's no goals on the horizon. You're not training for a game on you know this Friday night and uh, who knows when the next time you're going to take the field. I saw that you started a healthy accountability challenge on Twitter at the start of the pandemic. What was that about and how did it work? As much as anything, it was for me. Um if if I started then you know and I would there was another coach that I would tag in it and some other people but it wasn't anything specific or or any rules to it it was just I'm gonna post myself doing a workout or or going on a hike or whatever and if I look dumb doing it I look dumb doing it but I need to get better at it and uh except for, for as much as anything it was just for me to check in and to publicly put out there that I did or did not do something. And, you know, I probably continued that for, I don't know, maybe six weeks. And and then the quarantine was still going and the pandemic was still happening. And so things changed a little bit, but I was trying to find a way to hold myself accountable and, and to let other people hold me accountable, whether I was doing things to be healthy or not. What, did you find yourself getting into some bad habits and that was kind of a response to it or was it just being proactive? Oh, I think as football coaches, you're either really healthy or you have some really bad habits. And <laughs> one of mine is to eat. I enjoy eating. And, and you know, what I found myself doing and, and it wasn't until I was out of it was sitting on the couch, mm-hmm. um, sitting on the couch a whole lot more than I ever had. And, it was a way to, to make sure that, you know, I at least got up and went and hiked four miles or I got up and, and did some type of workout because there wasn't a whole lot to do otherwise. Uh, you know, normally as PE teachers and weightlifting teachers, you're up and walking around in, in a weight room and talking and exerting energy most of the day. And it took me a while to get in a groove of doing things around the house that exerted energy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, well, good for you for being proactive about it and getting ahead of it because I think 
a lot of people got into bad habits and, you know, that can lead to some mental health issues too. You know, they said during, during the pandemic, you know, 30% more people were experiencing symptoms of depression. And I think that can stay, it can all kind of spiral if you're, if you're sitting around, you're not exercising and you mentally, you start to feel down. So it was a good example to set, I think for your fellow coaches and even your players to see like, Hey, there's something you can do if you're starting to sit around and feel lazy and, you know, not, not do the things that you need to be doing to get, move yourself forward. So I, I definitely commend you for doing that. Were there any, um, in terms of a coaching during a pandemic, it seems like everybody has a funny story or an interesting story. I, I'll give you one. I was, um, my daughter, I have a five or at the time she was five, she was in kindergarten and this was in the spring. And, um, she was doing one of those zoom calls for school and, um, you know, it's a, I felt bad for the teacher. It's a class of kindergartners. So, you know, it's the teacher's just struggling and kids are, don't know, don't know how to unmute themselves and mute themselves. And everybody's just, it's just chaos. And, um, so the, you can tell it's kind of wrapping up and I'm kind of walking over to the computer to log my daughter off. And then right before everybody logs off, the teacher's like, is there anything else anybody wants to say? And one of the girls is like, you know what? I I can't hold it in anymore. I have a crush crush on Nicholas and I want him to be my boyfriend. And everybody just sat there with their mouths wide open like, whoa, what did we just hear? And the teacher's like, oh, you know, you guys are all too young to have boyfriends, blah, blah, blah. All right, I'll talk to you. Like the teacher handled it as well as could be expected, but it was pretty crazy. Do you have any uh, interesting or funny stories from the pandemic that are, you know, not not along the lines of just staring at guys on a Zoom all day? <laughs> no, I I think everything's been pretty, pretty um, boring and monotone and vanilla uh, on our end here. It's, you know, we've had our meetings and and stuff, but you know, the for the most part, the guys and the kids they don't want to be sitting there in front of the screen on those meetings most of the time or in those classes in that form. So they've done a good job of of being there when they need to and and not adding in any of the extra curricular things that may go on or comments so that we can get the business done and move on yeah it's funny we we connected by zoom for this and we were both on the same page. i've done so many of these zooms uh and i left it up to you like hey do you want to be on video and you're like no nah, i'd rather not and i think i think when you're meeting with your teams then yeah you want to be on video you want to make sure everybody's accountable but we've done so many of these by now you're like all right let's uh Let's just relax and just do the audio. We don't need to do the video. But, Coach, I appreciate you taking the time. It's um, it's always fun to talk to coaches and, you know, find out how state championships came together. And that was really interesting to talk to you about that. Um, good luck as you ramp up and hopefully get back to get back to normal in the spring. Uh, Coach Loman, thanks so much for being here. Yes, sir. Well, thanks for having me. All right, and you can get this podcast and any others on fnfcoaches.com. Just search by podcast. We have all of our podcasts from the pandemic. We do two a week. Stay tuned for more on fnfcoaches.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. 
Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyIn.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, Ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.